Thank you, Father. Thank you that you're here with us, Lord, that uh, it could be like we're all sit, sitting around a campfire with you, and that you could uh, minister your Christ to us, that we could just be persuaded that we have a certainty that life will manifest in us wherever we find ourselves. Thank you, Lord, that our lives in this world can be born from a certainty that nothing can separate us from your love. Thank you, Jesus, for taking on a body that's in the likeness of sinful flesh and allowing that body to be broken so we could have something to behold that could heal us, that could make us whole from the death in this world. Thank you, Father. Amen. Glory to God. Um, we're just going to start by reading these verses. Philippians 1.18 through uh, verse 21. What then? There's a lot we could say about these things. It's too much. I'm trying to focus in on one part. What then? Notwithstanding, this is the Apostle Paul, every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and my hope. Notice he describes hope as earnest expectation, a certainty. It's different than worldly hope. Worldly hope is we don't know if something will be, but we hope it will be. Wishing, thank you. The world's definition of hope is more like wishing. When Paul talks about hope, he's talking about an earnest expectation, a certainty, a full-on confidence that comes from knowing that it can't go down or shake out in any other way, right? That's what he's talking about. According to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed. Remember that, in nothing I shall be ashamed. Because that, that carries with it a powerful connotation in the scriptures in the spirit of prophecy, right? That's spoken about from beginning all the way in. Remember, it talks about Adam being naked and not ashamed right, before he ate from the tree. And so you want to, we're going we're gonna to focus in on that phrase, but keep that in the back of your mind. Paul comes and says that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. <laughs> that don't make no sense to the wisdom in the world. There's a whole lot of things I could say, but I want to try and keep this concise so we can get to communion. To, to live as Christ, I just want to say it this way. To live as, to Christ, as Christ and also to die as Christ is what Paul's saying there, right? He's not talking about he gets some special treat, like, a, like my dog gets a special treat sometimes. He's not talking about I get some special treat if I die that I don't get if I live. What he's making is the qualification that to live is Christ, to die also is Christ. The gain that he says is Christ, right? That's the gain. And so what Paul is saying is, if I continue in this flesh, Christ will be made manifest in me. And if I die in this flesh, Christ will be made manifest in me. Whether I continue to walk in this world or I die in this world, Paul says, I have an earnest expectation that the life of Christ will be made manifest in me. Whether I'm sitting on a beach, sipping a glass of wine and eating a nice piece of unleavened bread, whether I'm doing that or whether they're nailing me to a tree and flogging me, the life of Christ will be made manifest in me. This one thing I know. Is what he's saying there. And so what Paul is describing is really what he talks about in the letter to the Colossians as Christ in you, the hope of glory, which is what Christ in you, the hope of glory is. The whole point is, is that in Christ, there is a certainty, a promise, a uh, established fact that the life of God will be made manifest in you in all things. And it was interesting that Paul wrote this letter when he was in jail, right? And so things... It's not real. I mean, none of us think it's real nice to be in jail, do we? That doesn't sound like a nice thing. 
But the life of Christ was still made manifest in Paul even while he was in jail. Even in his bonds, he says. Right? And so Paul was living by this certainty that Christ gave him a certainty of glory in all things. Not glory in some things. You see, because the world says you have an expectation of glory in some things. And the expectation of glory you have in some things is if things can go well, then there can be some glory for you. Right? How many of you grew up thinking you had a special skill or a special talent? That if you could work it right, there would be glory. But then what would be if you didn't work it right? No glory. No glory for you. Right? It's like the soup Nazi. No soup for you. From Seinfeld. <laughs> right? No glory for you. Well, what Paul came to the place where he realized is that he was busy with something in the Lord Jesus Christ that gave him a certainty that gl glory would be made manifest in him no matter what. That a glorious life would be made manifest in him even if where he found himself was in the place of things that aren't so glorious. Because it doesn't look so glorious to be in jail. But Paul found even while he was in jail, something powerful happened. The life of Christ was still manifest in him even while he was in bonds. So much so to the point that he was actually ministering to the people who had him in the bonds. And you know what he's ministering to them? Imagine the, the confounding of this kind of a thing. He's ministering life to people that have him in the bonds of death. That's a strange kind of a thing. So Paul, Christ gave Paul a certainty of glory in all things. And, and that's why Paul says that he's confident that in nothing he shall be ashamed. Nothing shall he be ashamed because he's persuaded whether it be in life or in death what does he say christ shall be magnified in my body right now that be ashamed is talking about a very specific thing we we, we can look at the feeling of shame externally and we could see this could make someone ashamed, that could make someone ashamed, but there's really a root of where shame comes forth that Paul is really highlighting here. So to be ashamed in the context of what Paul's talking about when he says, in nothing will I be ashamed, what he's talking about there is the idea that he could ever find himself in the place where life isn't manifesting in him. That's what it means to be ashamed. To be ashamed is that you would find yourself in the place where life isn't manifesting in you where you're looking and you don't see life coming forth. The feeling of shame, if we look at its deepest root, the feeling of shame comes when we think that we're separated from some good thing that's needed to see life manifest. That's when we can feel ashamed, right? We think we need to have something for life to be manifested, for a glorious life to be shown forth, and we think that we don't have a certainty of that, or we don't have what is needed to manifest a glorious life, that's the feeling of shame. That's what it means to be ashamed. When we see ourselves as not possessing some characteristic or some attribute that is needed to have a glorious life, we feel ashamed, right? So when Paul says, in nothing will I be ashamed, he's saying, I know that wherever I'm at and whatever's going down, Life will be made manifest in me. I won't find myself in the place where life isn't being made manifest in me. I won't find myself in the place where life is not working in me and swallowing the effects of whatever it is that is coming against my life. So I won't be left having my nakedness uncovered no matter whether I find myself walking and living in this world and, and trapped in prison or whether I find myself even being nailed to a cross, right? I won't be left with my nakedness uncovered I know that I will be clothed upon in the life of God. That's what he says. So that in nothing will he be ashamed. That's why we don't like the fruit of the Spirit. You ever wonder why are the works of the flesh? You know why the works of the flesh work against our conscience? Anybody ever felt condemned when they saw something come out of them that they thought wasn't life? I mean, some of you were in the Bible study this morning. You know what I can honestly tell you? I did not feel ashamed for what I did or what I said. 
or the misunderstanding between Thomas and I. I didn't feel any shame. Do you know why? Because even should I completely miss the whole thing, and even should I made a fool out of myself, do you know what? Christ will be made manifest in me. Do you see what I'm saying? So what should I be ashamed of? Even should I completely miss that whole thing, what I know is me missing the whole thing can't keep God from manifesting his life in me. So what is there to be ashamed of? But the reason why the conscience can condemn us, the knowledge of good and evil. We see the works of the flesh, and we see that's not the fruit of life. And it speaks a silent word to us that life isn't present with us, that we don't have what we need to have life, and then we feel ashamed. Right? Well, God come to rip that concept out of us by giving us a certainty that even should we find ourselves in death or in a place in the world that's trying to uncover our nakedness, we have a certainty that the life of Christ will be made manifest in us. That delivers us from feeling ashamed because we know life is coming. Right? Life is coming. And then we look to the Lord Jesus. You see the Lord Jesus coming on the clouds of your heart. Right? This whole concept of shame, it, it's found in other places. You know, Hebrews 12 says Jesus wasn't ashamed on the cross. It, it says his heart disesteemed the shame. Well, why would there shame be there? What shame is there for the Lord of glory? What's it talking about there? It's talking about the effect that death would try to have on the human heart. So Jesus was not left ashamed at the cross. What that means is the cross couldn't convince Jesus that it was able to keep life from manifesting in him. He looked at the death of the cross. He looked at his nakedness uncovered. And he looked at the cross and he looked at his nakedness. And he said, this can't keep life from manifesting in me. And so Jesus had a certainty that even should they nail me to a tree, even should they strip me naked, even should they press a crown of thorns on my head, even should they spit on me and mock me, even should they deny my identity, even should they do that, nothing can keep the Father's life from manifesting in me. So in nothing was Jesus ashamed, not even when he was nailed to a cross and it looked like he was farther away from life than he could ever be. Not even that could separate him from the love of the Father. Hmm. I mean, the Father's life was manifested in Jesus, even in the midst of so great a death of the cross. It says, for the joy set before him, his heart disesteemed the shame. What joy that was set before him? The Father's about to bring forth joy in my heart. Hallelujah. You see how you can fixate on the death you're dying or you can fixate on the Father's life that you know is coming forth? When you fixate on the shame of thinking you don't see life, then you begin trying to clothe yourself with the world. And that's when you serve yourself with more death. Not even the death of the cross could keep the Father's love, the Father's joy, and the Father's peace from being made manifest in Jesus. Not even the death of the cross could leave Jesus in a place where life wasn't manifested in his body. You see that? You know, we're tormented because we, we've, we've been taught kind of that uh, in some things we will be ashamed. <laughs> Meaning that there are some things in some places we can find ourselves where the life of God will not be made manifest. We could find ourselves somewhere that's actually a stumbling block to the life of God being made manifest. And so we leave ourselves through that belief. I'll say that belief leaves us in the place where we're not living by a certainty that whether I live or whether I die, the life of Christ will be made manifest in me, right? Paul says the same thing in Romans 8. He says a little bit different that he says here in Philippians, where he says that whether I abound or I abase, I know life will be made manifest in me. He says in Romans 8, nothing can separate him from the love of God. He says, neither peril. I mean, what, is it to mean, what does it mean to be separated from the love of God? What it means is that you're separated from God manifesting his life in you. Because God loved you, he came to give you life. And so when Paul says nothing can separate him from the love of God, what he's saying is nothing can separate me from God manifesting life in me. And then he runs down a long list of things. Neither peril, nor shipwreck, nor beatings, nor persecutions, neither life or death. None of those things can keep me from seeing God in my flesh. We'd have a much better time in this world if we were actually living by Christ in us, the hope of glory, where we lived in this world knowing nothing can keep me from seeing God in my flesh. 
Nothing can keep me from seeing God manifest in my flesh. Yeah, I might have encountered some death in the world, but that death can't keep me from seeing God manifest in my flesh. That death can't keep God from manifesting his life, his peace, his joy inside of me. Because then we would look past the death we're encountering for the joy that we see is coming forth. That's where you start counting it all joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials and temptations. You don't count it all joy because you like the trials and the tribulations. It's just you see past the trials and the tribulations to see that you have a certainty that God's going to produce life in you that's going to swallow up these tribulations. And so you're rejoicing about that. Oh, hallelujah. Because the faith we're busy with is tried and true. It's been put in the fire of the death of this world. There's nothing that can happen to us that's worse than happened to what happened to the Lord Jesus on the cross. And the faith that was in his heart on the cross manifested life, even in the midst of that. That's what we're busy with. That's what Paul was busy with. He said he lived by the faith of the Son of God, the faith that was revealed in the Son of God, who loved me so much that he actually went to the cross and laid down his life for me so that this faith that is full of power to manifest life, even in the midst of peril and sword, could be put on display for us to see and we could be partakers with him in this life that even overcomes death in the flesh. That's a whole lot of stuff to do just so people could see the faith you have and that they could be saved by that faith. And live by the same certainty that in nothing will I be ashamed that no matter where I find myself, even should my whole family hate me, even should everybody around me despise me, even should the whole world speak evil of me, I got a life, I got a certainty that the life of Christ will be made manifest in me. It will swallow up all this tribulation. Now you start living like what the world wants to call a boss. <laughs> the world's idea of what a boss is is not a boss at all. This people trying to exalt themselves by their strength in their own hand. That ain't no boss. That's a weakling. Because even the, strong, the strength of the strongest person according to the flesh is weakness. Goliath was the strongest person the world could find, and he was nothing in comparison to little five foot four David, who didn't have any armor or sword or nothing. Do you know what David knew? In nothing will I be ashamed, because the life of Christ will be made manifest in me. That's what he knew. And if you go read the story of Goliath, it actually says that Goliath was uncovering their nakedness when you look at it in the Hebrew. He was like, I am in the way of you having a glorious life. Send somebody out to try to take me out. And David was like, nothing can keep the life of Christ from manifesting in me. Well, at least take our... Our, our swords and our armor, David. I mean, this guy's like seven foot eight. In the old church, we had an actual life-size depiction of Goliath and a life-size depiction of David. They tried to, well, at least take these things. Nah, I don't need that because the certainty that life will be made manifest isn't those things. It's the Christ that's in me. I mean, David, come across a lion and a bear. Lions and tigers and bears, oh my. Lions and tigers and bears, oh my. Well, most of us, if we encountered a lion, might start thinking that's going to be in the way of us having life. Right? Especially if that lion started. Rawr. But David was like, no, no, no. Not even this lion can keep life from manifesting in me. Not even this bear can keep life from manifesting in me. So Paul knew there's no situation which he'll be ashamed, whether shipwrecked, whether encountering pale peril or the sword or famine or if he lives or worse if he dies and if he dies the death of someone labeled a heretic or a blasphemer like the death jesus died there's no more greater shameful death according to the world than the death the lord jesus died paul said in none of those things will he be ashamed because none of those things can keep christ from manifesting his life in paul that, you have the same thing. That's what we're busy with. Right? You look past the shame of the death that is swirling around you right now because you see the certainty that life will come forth, that life will be brought forth, that the Lord Jesus will call out your name and call you forth from the grave close. Right? 
So Paul saw the sufferings of this present world, nothing compared to the Christ that dwells in him. Nothing. He wasn't just talking about some future day in the by and by. He saw that the glory that is Christ's life far surpasses the weakness he could experience in the world and in his mortal body. He saw the life of Christ that was dwelling in him is so glorious that it will swallow whatever he encounters in the world with the love of God. And that's what he looked forward to. He always saw nothing can keep the love of God from coming forth in me. And he, he really believed that. Paul was like the psalmist, right? What did the psalmist say? Even should my bed be made in the grave, you are with me there, O Lord. Well, if the Lord is there with you, do you know what that means? That means you coming out of the miry clay. And David was talking about the death he brought to his house, his own son, because of what he did with Bathsheba. That's when he made his bed in the grave. David was knowing, and nothing will I be ashamed, even though iniquity came in, into my heart, and I went and I fornicated with Bathsheba when God would have given me any wife I could have had, even though I sinned against God. And because I sinned against God, I brought death upon my baby son, whom I loved more than anything. David knew, even though I made my bed in the grave, God is there with me. Nothing can keep the life of God from bringing me forth up out of this death, and nothing can keep the life of God from bringing forth my little infant son out of this grave. That's what he knew. Now imagine the boldness you could feel if you know life will always be made manifest. Imagine you knew that everything you did would work out perfectly always. What would you be doing? Now what do we do because we don't think it's going to work out perfectly? What do we not do? Because we're so worried that life won't be made manifest when we do it. Man, the Lord will come and remove that whole thing from your heart. I mean, we almost shut down the church because we started doing the church, and I don't know if you guys realize I'm not a very good preacher. And I mean that according to the flesh. I don't mean that according to God. And there was a time where I'm looking at my ability, and I'm thinking, forgive my language, I suck so bad at this that life can no way be manifest here. Right? And it almost kept me from doing what was in my heart. I knew enough about God in that place, though, and he sent some people around me that loved me enough to minister to me that I began connecting with God, and I began to realize that whether I'm a good preacher or I'm a horrible preacher, nothing can keep life from manifesting in me. Whether people think I'm a good preacher or I'm a bad preacher, nothing can keep life from manifesting in me, right? That's the whole point, living by that. Whatever it is you do in this world, know that nothing can keep the life of Christ from manifesting in you and walk like that. Right? Does that make sense? This is Philippians. Remember Paul says later in chapter 4 that he learned to be content whether he was abased or whether he was abounding. Right? That's when he goes on to say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I know we've looked at that as, you know, I'm going to have the power to do all these crazy things. But what Paul was saying is the strength for me to experience life when I'm abased is Christ. And he's there when I'm abased. The strength for me to experience life when I'm abounding is Christ. He's with me when I'm abounding. You might think, well, what do you need strength for when you're abounding? You know, one of the most dangerous times for a human being's life is when they're abounding. Do you know why? Because you can be tempted to think your life is hid in those good things that are coming forth now that you're abounding. Imagine, for some strange reason, at the latter part of my life, everybody decides, we love Christ crucified. We love for the carnal mind to be trashed every week. We love it to hear that the world can't give us life. We love it. And now imagine people start swarming around the ministry. And people, I get millions of YouTube uh, subscribers and millions of YouTube followers. Now imagine how destructive that would be for my life if I began to think my life was found and how many followers I had. Or how many people agreed with my message. Or how many people liked my videos or watched my videos. Imagine how destructive that would be. But now Christ is with me while I'm abounding and Christ is promising me that the certainty I have that life will be made manifest isn't in my popularity, it's in him. And now my heart never gravitates to the good I see happening, thinking that that good is the power to me experiencing the love of God. 
I used to live that way. And I think most believers do live that way. That the good they see is the evidence they're loved by God. That's why we feel so confused when we don't see good. Right? So things could be going real good for you. And you could be thinking, my life is hidden that. Hallelujah. Well, where are you going to be when it ain't going good? <laughs> if that's your hope. If your earnest expectation of life coming forth is wrapped up in the things in the world, where are you going to be when the things in the world go bankrupt? Right? This is Paul. Revelation 12. As Gwen and I have talked about many times, we used to hide from this verse. We don't want to hear this verse. I'm just going to read it out loud in all of our midst. Revelation 12 says, They love not their lives unto death. They love not their lives unto death. Do you, do you know what, what the scripture also says in the latter days? That people will become lovers of themselves. How much do you hear in the world you just got to love yourself? And listen, I think I'm beautiful to God, so don't get it twisted what I'm saying. And I think every human is beautiful to God. There's a difference between knowing you're beautiful to God, right, and being a lover of yourself. Jesus goes on to say, those who hate their life in the world shall gain their life. Hate their life in the world. Well, does that mean I despise my marriage with Becky? No. Does that mean I hate that Brad's building us a new kitchen? No. Does it mean that I hate that I have friends and people in this church that love me? No, it doesn't mean that I hate that. But what it means to hate the life that you have from the world is it means for you to look at the life that you can have from the world and you count it as dung towards the end of being able to father life in you. Right? I could love myself all day long. That can't produce the love of God in me. Do you see what I'm saying? In fact, when I was preaching all the time and didn't think I was a very good preacher, people tried to deliver me from the angst I felt over that by telling me what a great preacher I was. And do you know what? That never worked. You can't actually be filled with the love of God by convincing yourself that you're good. <laughs> you can't. You can only be filled with the love of God by seeing the beauty he has in his eyes for you. Right? Does that make sense? And so, guys, in the body of Christ, we've kind of been, I'm just going to, I'm done sugarcoating it. We've sugarcoated it for years, right? And I don't mean sugarcoated the truth. What I mean is we've tippy-toed around all the hurt we felt, all of us, knowing how abused we've been, right? And so we were very careful in words that we use because we don't want people to think, well, they got to do this by their strength. And we don't want to hit them with the truth that now they think they got to perform, Right? So I'm going to use these languages anyway, and the Holy Spirit will have to sort it out. But we've kind of, and I don't mean you and me personally, I mean the body of Christ as a whole, Christians. We've kind of, I don't even want to say kind of, we've been taught to love the life we have from the world. We have. And again, to love the life doesn't mean you like going to concerts or you like going out to dinner with your wife or you enjoy working out. What it means is, is you look at the things of the world and you think those things can father life in you. That's what it means to love something. When we say we love God, we're not talking about what we do for God. When we say we love God, what we're talking about is we see God is the only one that can father life in us. And we see he's come to us to father his life in us, free from our works. We love God. So to be a lover of the world is that you look at the things in the world, whatever it might be that you can accumulate in the world, whether it be a good relationship, whether it be money, whether it be a job, whether it be a ministry, whether it be anything like that, we look at those things and think those things can father life in us if we can just get them right. That's what it means to be a lover of the world, right? You're, you're essentially calling the world father is what you're doing. And when you call the world father, it's even a subconscious thing. You don't realize you're doing it. But when you're loving the world and thinking the world can father life in you, do you know what life you're identifying with? You're identifying with the life that the world has brought forth. And it's the life the world brought forth that has served all of us with pain and misery. So that's kind of what we've been taught. And so we, we can get so easily caught up in earthly things as if they're the power to manifest Christ. Right? And what I mean by that is if tribulation is present, Christ can't be made manifest in me. But if the tribulation can be removed, then Christ can be made manifest in me. We, we, we were taught that. 
that the tribulation can keep us from life. We've been taught that peril and sword and famine and persecution can keep life from manifesting in us. And so the second it happens, we see it as a stumbling block to us experiencing life. And then we feel ashamed because we don't have something we need to have life. I thought I needed to be a good preacher to have life. I thought I needed people to agree that what I was saying was the truth in order to have life. That was a lie. I don't need nobody to agree with nothing to have life because Christ is life. You see? We've, we've heard it said that tribulation can keep peace and love and joy from manifesting in us. We can be so afraid of the tribulation in the world. We can be so afraid of the bad things that can happen here. And because so many Christians, and my heart breaks for the Christian world right now. i just got to be honest, and we talked about it in there. As I watch the world do what the world was always going to do, as I watch it happening and I see the Christian world and how they're reacting and, and what's happening to them, man, it breaks my heart, but we could be so afraid of the bad things that can happen here. And because of that, so many Christians live in fear of encountering tribulation or encountering the death that's already in the world, right? And because of that, many, the scripture would say this, many are sick and weakly because they aren't discerning the Lord's body. Sick and weakly because they aren't discerning the Lord's body. Well, where do you get that language, Greg? Well, if you go read 1 Corinthians Chapter 11, Paul talking to the, the Corinthians, the church at Corinth, people he led into the truth, into the faith. He says to them that many of you are sickly and weak and have fallen asleep outside of due time or outside of natural time because they aren't discerning the Lord's body when they gather together and take communion, he says. Now listen, guys, weak and sickly, I know we have our, our modern-day vernacular and definitions. Weak and sickly isn't only in the sense of we think of getting COVID, right? Like that's to be sick. You got COVID or you got a flu, right? It's not just talking about some physical ailment when it talks about weak and sickly. Remember, this is the Apostle Paul, and I keep saying this over and over because I desire for people to be able to read the Scriptures themselves and start connecting the Pauline doctrine. Because Paul says the same things in different letters with different terms. But when Paul talks about being weak and sickly and some falling asleep outside of natural time, he described the same thing in Romans 8 when he talked about the body of death. And who shall save me from this body of death? And so when Paul talks about many people being weak and sickly because they're not discerning the Lord's body, what he's talking about there is their hearts have been filled with fear and their hearts have been filled with the cares of this world because they're not discerning the Lord's body when they gather together. And because their hearts are filled with fear and because their hearts are, are filled with the cares of the world, they're drinking unto themselves the same condemnation that the world is drinking unto themselves. That condemnation doesn't come from God. Paul describes that condemnation in Romans 8 as the condemnation that comes to you when you think you're separated from what you need to have life and godliness because if you think you're separated from what you need to have life and godliness you will always agree that life is good and if you think you don't have a certainty life and what is good will come forth in you you're going to start trying to produce life and produce what is good yourself and the more you try and do that do you know what you're going to heap alive inside of your life the works of the flesh murder envy gossiping backbiting hatred that's weak and sickly the gospel comes to heal your flesh. Weak and sickly is for your flesh to be incited unto laboring and toiling to try to clothe itself with life. And the more you try and do that, the more you're dying. I mean, medical science even says that the root of every illness is stress. Well, what are we stressed out about? I mean, I'm not saying we don't feel stress. I'm, I'm talking to a group of people I know have all felt stress. And I'm telling you, consider with God, why do you feel stressed out? And let him start unraveling it for you. Let him start ministering to you the Lord Jesus' body. Start to see the Father standing before you, offering you the Lord Jesus' body. Right? Because when you discern the Lord's body, you'll be delivered from the fear and the cares of the world.
that produce thorns and thistles. That's what it means to be weak and sickly. That's what it's talking about when he talked about that. So the Corinthians Paul wrote to about communion, and we're almost done. The Corinthians that Paul wrote to about communion, they were taking the physical elements. Like they were gathering and taking the physical elements, but they were still weak and sickly because they weren't discerning what the Lord's body was all about when they were taking the physical elements. They weren't even understanding, like, what's the point of this all about? Do you know what they ended up thinking? Oh, we're here to take some bread and some wine. Oh, hallelujah. Maybe I could steal two or three cups of the wine. And maybe, you know, I might get a little buzz. And then they're elbowing their neighbor. Well, do you want your bread? Can I have yours? You see what can happen when you think it's about the physical elements themselves. And you lose sight of the heart that's behind it. They weren't discerning the Lord's body. Communion is spirit and life. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, he right after that said, my words are spirit and they are life. Right? And so what Jesus was saying is, there's a life-giving truth that is going to be revealed in me offering up my body on the cross. When I shed my blood, there's going to be a life-giving truth that's going to pour out of my body. Right. And if you discern that truth or rather let that truth discern your life for you, what will happen is, is you won't be weak and sickly. And so the, the discerning of the Lord's body is about what's in your heart as you take the physical elements. It's not about taking the physical elements themselves. You can take the physical elements. Glory to God. But you better believe that you can take communion and discern the Lord's body, even if you're out in a desert with no water and no food anywhere. I mean, I just want to say it this way. When Jesus was being tempted in the desert, he took communion. And he didn't turn those stones into bread. He discerned. So what does it mean to discern the Lord's body? These are the kind of questions, man, that we want you to be engaging with in God, with God, with the Father. Right? Your life with the Father involves you asking questions. You coming to him with your confusion. You gaining understanding about what this stuff is all about. It's not about you just get in line. Act right. Pretend. What do we used to say? Fake it till you make it. The Lord is not looking for you to fake it till you make it. If you don't understand anything, you know what gives him a big smile? For you to come and say, I don't understand anything, Lord. I mean, he had to bring me to that place because I thought I knew something. And then he said, well, Greg, you already know everything. So let's see how what you know works out for you. <laughs> he didn't do that out of, out of uh, bitterness or anger. He couldn't have kept me from what I was doing anyway. He acknowledged me as a co-equal. This guy's so established in what he knows, I can't talk him out of it anyway. So let's see what he knows, what it produces. And then after what he thinks he knows produces death in him because he won't let me serve him with life, then I'll come and ask him, how you like that death? Then he'll realize, I don't know anything, Lord. Ah, That's why it says the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. It's to realize that God is the only one who knows. And you begin asking God instead of establishing what you think you know. Right? So what does it mean to discern the Lord's body? Discerning the Lord's body, real simple, is to discern that God provided himself a lamb. It's to discern that God has perfected you. He has perfected me. He's perfected us from the sin and death that's in the world. He's perfected us. You know the sin and death and the tribulation we're so afraid of? You've already been perfected from it. Discerning the Lord's body when you encounter the tribulation and you're thinking you need to be delivered from that tribulation to have life, you discern the Lord's body and you see that your life has already been cleansed from this tribulation. Jesus was in tribulation when he didn't have no food. And he could have got out of the tribulation by turning those stones into bread. Right? But Jesus discerned the life of God. And he discerned it properly. Discerning the Lord's body is to discern that God has perfected us from the sin and death that's in the world once for all time through the blood of Jesus. That's, again, to be washed clean. John says, Behold the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. Behold, Sin is a noun there. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the death that was reigning over the world. 
Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the death that was molesting people. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the death that is abusing people. When you encounter the torment and the abuse and the molestation in the earth, you discern the Lord's body by beholding that God has already perfected your life from that harm. And that there's a life in me that will even swallow and overcome that. That will fill you with strength and keep you from being weak and sickly. So when John said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he was discerning the Lord's body. He was discerning that God had provided himself a lamb to sanctify him from the death that's in the world and to set him apart unto God in his indestructible life. John was discerning that though his sin was red as crimson, God had provided a lamb to cause the death that was reigning over him to be made as white as snow. That's he's discerning the Lord's body. Acts 20, 28, you know what it says? It's a, it's a magnificently profound thing, especially in the Western world, because we've been taught the Father and the Son were separate at the cross. But if you go and read Acts chapter 20, verse 28, it says God shed his own blood to redeem us. God. It says God shed his own blood to redeem us. To discern the Lord's body is to see that God himself gave his body to be broken, to serve to sanctify you from the serpent and the serpent's death. And do you know why he did that? He did that so he could come and sup with you in your house. So he could come and dwell with you in your body, in your temple, which is in your house. He did it. He offered his own body to be broken so he could pour out of himself his Holy Spirit and thus make your body his house. And that he could come and dwell in your body and cause the death that's in the world to pass over you and thus deliver you from a life where you're all the time living in fear of tribulation and fear of death. Sweating from your brow, trying to deliver yourself or working to produce life. This is what discerning the Lord's body is about. Just as the Hebrews, right? Living by the sweat of their brow, the Hebrews. Because that's when the lamb was first provided in the, to the Hebrews. In the scriptures. After the flood. What were they doing? They were in captivity. And they were laboring inside of their captivity. And what did Pharaoh say? Go and make bricks, but he took away the straw. <laughs> make bricks without straw. Well, Brad could tell you if he was here, if you can make bricks without straw. You can't. And so there's a bondage that comes to you when you're left trying to make bricks without straw. Well, there's a bondage that came to us through death reigning over us. It's called the captivity of the serpent. And you know what that captivity was? We were trying to produce life to deliver ourselves from the fear of tribulation, but we were looking to our own flesh that had death in it and not life. That's the captivity of the evil one. That's what it means that Jesus led captivity captive when he ascended on high. Right? In the Exodus, we mentioned the Exodus. This is the beginning where you want to start trying to discern what communion's about or discerning the Lord's body. In the Exodus, God provided a lamb to the Hebrews. Why did he do that? To cause the destroyer to pass over them, which was death. To cause the death that comes from the destroyer to pass over them, and then that would cause them to be delivered from the bondage of Pharaoh. That's what he gave them. And to everyone who discerned the body and blood of the Lamb, even some Egyptian dudes, go and read the Scriptures. When it talks about the Hebrews coming out, it says, and some strangers and foreigners came out with them. There were some Egyptian dudes that saw, listen, man, we worshiping gods that are serving us with plagues. The God of Israel will cause death to pass over us. And we could walk out. The God of Israel will provide a lamb. The God of Israel will make an offering that will cause death to pass over us. And so to everyone that believed that God would deliver them from the destroyer and the bondage of Pharaoh by the body and blood of the lamb, it says they were led out of capti the captivity of Egypt. And do you know what it says? It's interesting it uses the same words. Because remember, Paul talked about many are weak and sickly, not discerning the Lord's body. Well, when the, the Hebrews put the blood of the lamb and ate the body of the lamb, the meat, they were discerning the Lord's body. And do you know what it says in Psalm 105, I think verse 37, that everyone who came out underneath the blood of the lamb, none of them were weak and sickly. Because they discerned the Lord's body. They discerned that the Lord had come and supped with them in their house. That he provided a lamb to come and sup with them in their house. And that caused death to pass over them. 
You know what makes you weak and sickly? The death that's in the world, the tribulation that's in the world, thinking those things can keep life from manifesting in you. You're not discerning the Lord's body. You're not discerning that you've been perfected already from tribulation, that God has already sanctified you from the tribulation in the earth that's come to your house and set you apart unto him in his indestructible life, that God himself is in your body. God himself will protect your house. That's what it means to discern the Lord's body. When you're taking communion, you're discerning that God himself offered his body to be broken so he could come and dwell inside of your house and he could keep your life for you. Do you really think death can overcome your house if your life is built upon the rock? If God's the one upholding your life, can the tribulation in this world really keep life from manifesting? Well, then how can it make me weak and sickly? How can it make my flesh be incited to laboring and toiling? How can it cause me to drink the condemnation that's in the world unto myself? Which condemnation Paul described as the life that happens when you try and labor to deliver yourself from death and produce the fruit of life. That's the condemnation the world drinks unto itself, not knowing that God has provided himself a lamb, not discerning the Lord has offered his own body to be broken, to come and cleanse us from death so that he could make our body his temple and he could keep us clean from death. It's like the three little pigs. This little piggy, this little piggy, that little piggy. And maybe I got my nursery rhymes jacked up. The, the, the little piggies made the houses, right? Okay. All right, well, so one of the little pigs built their house on a shore foundation. Or rather, their house was built on a shore foundation. Right? And when the big bad wolf came, you think that little piggy was scared? You think he was weak and sickly? Well, the big bad wolf still huffed and puffed. I mean, his belly got out. It came in. His chest. Blah, blah. <sighs> Jesus says, you've forgotten. He called Peter a piece of the rock. Isaiah come and said, we've forgotten the rock from which we were hewn. Discerning the Lord's body is to see that God has built your life upon the rock that is his life. And that the world can huff and puff all it likes. And it can't blow your house down. It, it, I said it can't blow your house down. You've been perfected from the sin and death in this world. You're not left to try to perfect yourself from the pain you've encountered in this world or the death you've encountered in this world. You're discerning the Lord's body. You see, God himself shed his own blood for you. God himself offered up his body to be broken. He didn't offer up his body to be broken to live inside of you rent-free. I mean, in Colorado, when we were younger, we had people in Colorado, they called them couch people. And don't misunderstand me. These people are still beautiful to God. But we call these people couch people because they live in on your couch rent free. And they eating all the food in your refrigerator. And they ain't doing no chores around the house. It ain't like they're outside cutting the yard. I mean, you're going off to work and you're coming home and they're sitting on the couch drinking beer, playing video games, allowing your yard to be overrun. Couch people. And don't get me wrong, if one of my friends comes and needs help for a month or so, and I understand this, glory to God. It's not that you don't ever help somebody. I'm talking about people that, you know, a couch person. Well, God, I promise you, did not do a work to offer up his own body to be broken, to live inside of you rent-free. He isn't like a couch person. God isn't a couch person. He isn't looking for a free ride. The reason he comes to sup with you is to cleanse you from death, to cleanse your temple with his blood, to make your body a home so he can protect your house. He does all that so he could keep your house from the destroyer and the death that's in the world and so that he can cause it to pass over you this is what we're supposed to be discerning when we take communion because you know what makes us all wicked sickly when we see death see no evil hear no evil think no evil speak no evil thank you it takes a takes a tribe when we see or speak or hear it it makes us sick and weakly well, do you know what will remove the sick and weakly and fill us with strength? To see that God has perfected us from it already and to start connecting with that and to see we have a certainty that life will be made manifest in our house, whether we continue in this world, whether we even get nailed to a tree. 
So many Christians get so afraid. Well, if I get nailed to a tree, I'm still supposed to be filled with joy. It ain't about how you're still supposed to be filled with joy. It's that if you come and get nailed to the tree by the world, God himself is going to stand up inside you. And God himself is going to manifest joy in you. And just like you're taken captive to fear, you don't try and go and bring forth fear. It just happens, doesn't it? Well, just like that, the love of God will stand up inside of you as you have fellowship with this truth. Right? So, guys, and we're going to take communion. When we take communion, Paul says you're showing forth or you're declaring the Lord's death till the day he returns. That's how you overcome the accusation that's in the world. You know when the accusation comes? When you find yourself in the place that you think is inconsistent with having life. That's when you begin to hear the accusations. Right? Well, when we take communion, we're showing forth the death of our Lord. We're declaring the blood of the Lamb. What we're remembering is that we are one flesh with God Himself. We are one flesh with God and His indestructible life through the body of the Lord Jesus. That's what we're remembering. That's what we need to remember. Right? We're remembering that God has made a home in us and has perfected us from the sin and death that's in the world once for all time. And as we remember that, our flesh is mortified. It's put to rest. We're not drinking into ourselves the condemnation that comes from thinking you have to deliver yourself or clothe upon yourself from the body of death, right? Your flesh is mortified. It's put to rest. And as Paul says in Romans 8, the Holy Spirit quickens your mortal body with God's life. That's discerning the Lord's body. That's what we need in the church. If you got that every week when you came into church, that's all you would need. And you would find your intellect doesn't need to be stimulated by new doctrines all the time you could find that your intellect can be stimulated just by other things that you enjoy. Maybe you enjoy music. Maybe you enjoy books. You might enjoy fiction. You could find your intellect stimulated by that, but you don't need your intellect stimulated to find the life of God coming forth in you. All you need is to discern the Lord's body. And that, like Paul said, in nothing will I be ashamed. The life of Christ will be made manifest in me no matter where I find myself, no matter what happens to me. Hallelujah. Right? So, we'll take communion. What do you want to do, babe? You want to just open this up? For you guys watching at home, we're going to end the message right now so we can turn on some music in the background. Um, but just take some communion or just, you know, talk to the Lord about what it means that He offered His body to be broken so that He could cleanse you from death and make your body His home and how He's keeping your house. Glory to God. You guys just wait one second. We'll get some music going. If you want to come up with somebody that you're here with or a friend or family members and you guys want to say a prayer together, great. Grab you some stuff. Go over to the side. Lead yourself in a prayer if you want. We'll put the music on in a second so people won't hear you pray. If you don't want them to hear, you don't have to pray anything. You could just remember what we talked about today. You could just ask God to make this truth real inside of you, right? That's all you could do. Yeah, yeah, end. I'm sorry. And then if you could turn on the.